Welcome to the Article to Audio podcast brought to you by the NAC team. NAC stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. The Article to Audio podcast interviews authors who have published research on negotiation and conflict management that advances theory and informs practice in the field. I'm Michael Gross. I teach in the Department of Management, College of Business at Colorado State University, and I'm your host for today. Today, we have Tim Stevens. Tim is an interdisciplinary scientist with expertise on the role of social media and information and communication technologies in social interactions. For his PhD research, he studied social media dynamics and agro-food governance. And I have a link posted on our NAC webpage so you could read more about his research and the work that he does, because it's really a lot and we can't mention it all right now. He enjoys bringing together disciplines to develop new conceptual and methodological frameworks. He currently investigates the interplay between educational innovations and teacher professional development and higher education. Today, we will discuss his article, Using Emotions to Frame Issues and Identities in Conflict, Farmer Movements on Social Media. This article was published in Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, Volume 14, Issue 2. In 2022, along with his co-authors, Noel Arts and Art DeWolf, this article received the Best Article Award for an article published in 2021. Congratulations on your scholarly recognition and award-winning article, Tim. Welcome to our podcast. Right, so my name is Tim Stevens. I'm working at Eindhoven School of Education, uh, Technical University Eindhoven. Okay, thank you. Here's your first question. Your article is fascinating and timely, where you examine the discursive interactions on social media through which intergroup conflicts develop. Can you share with our listeners a personal story that brought you to this study? Yeah, well, I was doing a PhD research about the role of social media dynamics in agrofood governance. So I studied social media conversations about animal farming and food production in the Netherlands. Uh, and I wanted to understand how different stakeholders, uh, such as farmers, politicians, companies, how they use social media to affect the public debate, but also to better understand how they were affected by uh, the social media conversation. So uh, I started with monitoring and exploring the social media debate, looking at uh, patterns over the past four years from a bird's eye view. And I saw a certain topic suddenly received a lot of attention. And I became really interested in, in understanding such peak activity on social media. So my first study focused on this peak activity and uh, I developed a method for identifying peak activity, or what I called social media hypes. And then I investigated each of these uh, cases of peak uh, uh, selective activity, uh, looking at uh, the amount of messages, but also at the, uh, the content. So uh, what was being said and the interaction between actors and media interplay. And I found three patterns, basically, scandals, activism, and conflicts. Uh, so I call these social different types of social media hypes. And I became really fascinated about, uh, about these conflicts. And what I found particularly fascinating was that every conflict that I found on social media was initially about a different issue, but that they 
the conflicts looked very similar, so they evolved in a similar way. And every time I saw the exact same uh, pattern, so it usually started with animal welfare organizations problematizing a farming practice and asking politicians to take actions. And then farmers mobilized a counter movement using identity frames and social media venues. And then the conflict received a lot of news media attention and more people got involved. And then finally a policy decision was made and then the attention for the issue diminished and the conflict returned dormant. So I found this really fascinating. Every time I saw the exact same pattern. So I want to better understand these dynamics by zooming in on the interactions on social media. Thank you. Your study is about framing. So what is the concept of framing for all our listeners that don't know? And what does that have to do with conflict research? How does the framing matter in social media conflict? Right. First of all, I think it's important to acknowledge the importance of communication in uh, conflict research in general, because perhaps many people tend to think that a conflict reflects a situation in which people have different opinions that are somehow incompatible. But I think conflicting opinions or interests do not automatically result in uh, a conflict. So a conflict is not an encounter of people with different opinions, interests, values, identities, uh, whatever, but a communication process through which people make differences in interaction. You know, communication is often said to be about making meaning and making sense of the world. So if we apply this to the context of conflict, that communication in conflict is about making differences and about shaping group identities. So from this point of view, uh, conflict is the type of social interaction or a, a type of communication. And then framing is a tool to study uh, communication. So it's a conceptual and methodological framework for analyzing uh, communication products or processes. And a frame is often described as a lens or a filter that people use to understand the world or to represent the world. So we use it in our minds, but it also becomes apparent in communication when we talk or when we uh, write things down. And then framing is the, the activity of selecting and ordering information, which becomes apparent in language. So if we talk, we select and order information. And in this way, we, we draw attention to some aspects of reality and thereby also divert attention from other aspects. So it is through framing that we can uh, create a particular story about the situation, the issue at hand, and also the role of people uh, therein. So, for example, a flood can be framed as a natural disaster or as a consequence of uh, bad environmental management. And if, if it is the consequence of bad environmental management, then usually those responsible for the causes are, are blamed and held responsible, and those that suffer from the consequence, consequences are, are victimized. So frames uh, are about events, issues, uh, and, and actors, and well, these are sort of linked to create a story about situation. Uh, now, the parties involved in a conflict generally see the world in, in different ways, and this is reflected in, in the frames they use. But the frames they use, they are not static, but they change when they interact, right? Because people anticipate on what others in a conversation might might think or say, or they react to, to others in a conversation. And this results in frame interactions. And these frame interactions help us to understand uh, conflict uh, dynamics. So how conflict emerge, evolve, and how they end. With regard to social media, uh, social media intergroup con conflicts are a particular type of conflicts. Uh, most framing studies in conflict research look at intragroup conflicts in organizations or at multi-party conflicts in governance processes. But an intergroup identity-based conflict on social media is quite different. First of all, because people on social media are generally not involved in a negotiation or decision-making. And second, because social identity plays a crucial role in social media interactions. So I think on social media, intergroup conflicts are more likely to, uh, to occur. 
So that is why, yeah, framing is interesting to study conflicts uh, and especially on social media. Thank you. That uh, leads me to ask about what are issue frames, identity frames, and what is a conflict framing repertoire? Right, so issue frames um, are frames that draw attention to specific understanding of what is at issue, what is at stake. So it is about what events are highlighted and how they are explained in terms of their causes and consequences. And identity frames highlight the role of parties in the situation. So who's to blame, who's responsible, uh, and who's the victim in this situation. And these frames, they help to understand one's own identity and the identity of others. So for example, in our case, uh, farmers can be framed as experts on animal welfare who take good care of their animals, but also as primarily entrepreneurs who are only interested in money and thus do not really care about uh, animal welfare. So in these issue frames and identity frames, they're often tied together uh, to make sense of a situation. Uh, so situations are labeled as problems, their causes are discussed, and those responsible are uh, confronted. And in conflict framing research, uh, the concept of conflict framing repertoire uh, captures such a coherent frame constellation. So it defines what a conflict is about and what the role of the parties in the conflict uh, is. And in an identity-based conflict between two parties, opponents usually assign an identity to themselves and the counterparty, and then both sides believe it is a fight between us and them, and that basically only one side can win. Um, and, and in this study, we found that each of the issue frame was actually connected to a corresponding identity frame. So, for example, animal welfare advocates, they said that animal welfare is opposed to economic interest. And because farmers are entrepreneurs, they are wrong. And on the other hand, farmers counter-argued that animal welfare does not conflict, but corresponds with economic interest and that they thus do care uh, for their animals. So both the issue and identity frames were based on a, on a binary opposition. And this was initially established through issue framing, so talking about the issue. But in the second phase, it evolved more blaming and uh, collective identity framing. Uh, so, you know, because you are a farmer, you do not care. That's what was being said in the end. And this uh, conflict framing repertoire is, is, is a system of interaction that uh, constitutes these binary uh, opposites. So that, that was at the heart of the identity conflict. Very nice. Your study is really sort of tackling a very complex phenomenon. And in addition to what you've told us about already, your study addresses the role of emotions. What can you tell our listeners regarding emotions in the framing of conflict? What are discursive emotions? Yeah, so, so there's a lot of research that shows that conflicts are fundamentally emotionally created and driven, uh, driven processes, So right? So, so people in a conflict are emotionally or, or emotional, uh, basically. Uh, but there isn't much research about the discursive use of emotion in intergroup conflicts. And uh, the discursive use of emotion is about the use and the effects of emotional language in conversations. So from a discursive perspective, emotional communication does not reflect a state of being. So it doesn't say anything about the emotional, emotional state of the speaker, uh, but rather it's, it's uh, a social practice with a function in social interaction and, and that is being studied. So if you take a discursive perspective, uh, you, you want to understand how emotions are used in communication processes and how it affects the conversation. 
And I was, of course, particularly interested in how the use of emotional language influenced frame interactions in conflict dynamics. And I was interested in, in emotions because it seemed to play a very important role in the conflict that I was, um, was analyzing. So in one case, for example, both parties stressed their love and, the, and their care for the animals. And so there was this hashtag Kalverliefde in, in Dutch, but it was something like love for cows. And this became the most dominant hashtag used by both parties. So both by farmers and the animal welfare uh, advocates. But on the other end, both parties also blamed each other for being so emotional. Nevertheless, they still both continued using emotion to stress their care for animals, and they both continued to accuse each other um, for being so emotional and thus also being deceptive or irrational. So somehow emotions were used to show their care uh, and to build credibility on animal welfare. So we care and we know what's best for our animals. But emotions were also used to undermine the credibility of the other party by saying that they were emotional and irrational and that they misused uh, emotion or were not trustworthy or something like that. And I wanted to better understand how they exactly did this and how this influenced the yeah, the conversation, the, the, the way the conflict uh, evolved. Very nice. Some of our listeners out there are learning about research methods. So can you tell us about how your study is organized and how did you collect data and analyze the data for the study? Okay, yeah, so it might be interesting to first say a little bit about social media analysis. Uh, in the first phase of my research, I made use of uh, software packages with access to historical social media data and with automated uh, analysis functions that were part of the tool. And with these tools, I was able to sort of zoom out and use computational methods for an analysis of, of the sort of larger emergent patterns on a, on a macro level, but also to zoom in on specific interactions for a more detailed understanding of critical moments in, in a conversation on a, on a more micro level. And this really helped me to gradually explore uh, the debate and generate an understanding of social media uh, dynamics and collected data and did my own analysis. And for this uh, particular study, um, I collected data by first developing a search query to collect all the messages on Twitter and Facebook that were related to this to these issues and to the identities that were at stake. And then I also collected all the news media messages and the parliamentary debates that were referred to in these social media me messages. And because we were interested in, in online interactions in intergroup conflicts, we focused the data sampling on uh, the key players in the, in the conflict and messages with high influence. Um, and well, high influence of a social media message is determined by the amount of reactions, basically, such as uh, retweets or replies of a, of a message. So this means that the Twitter and the Facebook messages that we collected did not form a single thread with a fixed number of people and a turn-taking structure. So you may wonder, well, how do you study interactions in, in such a collection of, of messages? Well, first of all, every message has, of course, a time tag to it. So we collect, so we looked at the, the sequence of, of messages. And then secondly, there are all sorts of social media uh, functionalities or indicators uh, of interactions, such as, you know, the, the, the function of a reply, a comment, a hashtag, a reference to uh, a hyperlink or just a textual uh, reference. And these indicators show how the message is related to the public conversation. So this is how we also looked at that uh, interactions. Uh, and then to identify and analyze the discursive use of emotions and the frames, because that, that was what we focused on. 
messages. We developed coding scheme and then based on uh, significant changes in our categories, we uh, reconstructed the sequence of events for each case and then determined the discursive shifts uh, in the conversation. And then finally, we analyzed the role of frame interactions and the discursive use of emotions in the course of these, uh, these interactions. So that is basically uh, what we did. Wow, thank you. Can you give us an overview then of the key findings of your study? Right, yeah, so we studied uh, the role of framing and the role of emotions in the course of the conversation in, in two cases. So we did a, a comparative case study. So first, with regard to framing, uh, we found that the two groups used the same set of frames in both cases. So in both cases, animal welfare advocates asked for uh, a law enforcement to change farming practices, while farmers asked for revision of the law so they could stick to their common farming practice. So they had different opinions, but they used the same moral frame, and this was really dominant in the conversation. So both parties said that animal welfare was of absolute importance. But their common care for animals did not result in a dialogue in search for the best solution, but in a conflict in which frames were used to, to make a difference between the groups. And since both parties claimed to know what was best for animal welfare, but they had distinct opinions about the policy solution, the discussion focused on who knew best, who has the most expertise on this topic, or who cared most for these animals. So who, who was who's most trustworthy in this debate? The parties agreed about the issue at stake, namely it's all about animal welfare, but they argued that their group is more knowledgeable or more trustworthy to judge about what is good for the animals. And this triggered a contestation of credibility. So who knows best and who cares most uh, for these animals in which the two groups use the same set of issue and identity frames to directly oppose each other. And well, this is, I gave the example earlier, farmers were, for example, portrayed as entrepreneurs, primarily interested in money to undermine their credibility, but they themselves also said, well, we do care about animal welfare because, um, well, it's in our interest. This is what we identified as a symmetric conflict framing uh, repertoire. And then second, with regard to the role of emotions, well, we identified four discursive strategies in which emotion was explicitly or implicitly used to frame issues and identity. And we found that the discursive use of emotion reinforced the conflict in two ways. So first, uh, the use of emotion reinforced a vicious cycle in the contestation of credibility. So on the one hand, emotions uh, were implicitly used to frame oneself as caring and loving and sensitive to build credibility. So by saying that we as farmers, we really love uh, our animals, we really care for our animals. But on the other hand, emotion um, is explicitly used to frame the other as deceptive. So for example, by saying that they make use of emotion in the debate or to frame the other as irrational. So by saying that they react out of emotion. So, you know, they're, well, they're irrational. And these way of using emotion, it, it reinforced each other. So because credibility was at stake, emotions were implicitly used to frame oneself as caring and trustworthy. But as these emotions were made explicit by the other party and, and were condemned by the other party, credibility was again contested. And this, well, this created this, this, this cycle. And then second, um, both parties used collective emotions as a response to the other group's offensive actions uh, and as a justification of one's own uh, collective actions. So they say like, well, your actions make us really angry, which is why we need to do this and that. And the other party said, well, 
what you do makes us really angry, so we need to do this and that. And in both cases, this blaming led to a shift from issue frames to identity frames and, and sort of a cyclical process of uh, accusations. What practical advice would you give our listeners based on these findings? What are the takeaways? What should we all know um, after learning about your study? Uh, well, practical advice really depends on, on who's listening, so um, not sure about that, but I think this is the first study, at least what to our best knowledge, that uh, reports about a symmetric conflict uh, framing repertoire. And I think a symmetric framing repertoire could be present in other conflicts. So it would be interesting to uh, to explore this. And perhaps one reason that this is the first study that reports about this is that most framing studies in conflict research look at conflicts within organizations or between multiple parties in, in governance processes. And this binary opposition that is that is at the root of the symmetric conflict framing repertoire that we reported, that is like less likely to be present in those situations than in an identity conflict between two parties. Uh, also, I think social media provide a perfect public platform for identity-based interactions for in-group and, and intergroup communications, right? Because parties can use community platforms, Facebook pages as a sort of battlegrounds for conflicts. So it would be interesting to analyze other online conflicts between two groups that recurrently clash uh, over certain uh, issues to see if a symmetric framing repertoire also exists well, in other cases and to de- determine the conditions that need to be present uh, for a, um, a symmetric conflict framing repertoire. And I think one condition, uh, or at least an important element, is this contestation of credibility. So our study shows that if parties have the same dominant moral frame, but have different ideas about the solution, then this can generate interactions that revolve around the contestation of credibility, uh, right? And the assumption is that only one of the parties can be right, and that considering the fact that the two parties express the same moral perspective, the one who is most knowledgeable and trustworthy must be right. And I think this line of reasoning is reflected in the frames that we found and and, uh, the symmetric conflict framing repertoire that constitute a moral frame, an issue frame, an identity frame that are are all uh, related. So it would also be interesting to see if a shared dominant moral frame is an essential ingredient uh, that I would like to explore uh, further. And I hope um, this also raises uh, the interest of other researchers that are listening to this. Well, the study is fantastic. Um, uh, I said it earlier in the introduction that it won the award for the best published article from Negotiation and Conflict Management Research. And I think if everyone takes a look at it, you can see why it's so sophisticated. I enjoyed reading it and I enjoyed having your time here talking with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you to our guests today for an engaging conversation. For more information about this episode, we hope you'll check out the podcast notes on the NAC website at www.negotiationandconflictteam.com. So that's one word, negotiationandconflictteam.com. There you can find additional resources and sources that, that and links to materials cited in this episode. Negotiation and Conflict Management Research is the official journal of the International Association for Conflict Management, and it serves as an outlet for scholars and practitioners who conduct research in negotiation and conflict management that advances theory and informs practice in the field. So on behalf of our podcast team, Ming Hong Sai, Laura Reese, 
Jennifer Parlamas, Michael Gross, that's me, and Deborah Sai. We thank you for listening. Please tell a friend about our podcast. We hope you'll join us next time for another fascinating discussion that brings us from article to audio.